We're going to continue our study of the Word of God. We're in the book of Jonah. This this morning we will pick up in chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. The Word of God reads, Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, that your ministerial work would be accomplished this morning through the preaching of your word into the hearts of your people, the church, to be reminded that, oh, how you are so gracious and so merciful, providing your own prophet a second chance to be obedient. How gracious you are. Also, Lord, this repentant prophet proclaimed your truth, proclaimed judgment, and it produced repentance in a pagan, heathen people. So today, may your church be built up, and today, may those who sit here as enemies of you who haven't been born again, that today, through the preaching of your word, that there would be repentance and an embracing of your son, the Savior, the only way, the truth, the life. Jesus Christ, it's in his name we pray. Amen. One thought this morning. What we have before us is one message with one response. God's word is his message. And when God's message is heralded, it generates reaction. Guaranteed. Whether the wrath of God is laid upon an individual who rejects that truth or whether one comes to a place of brokenness in receiving that truth and submitting to that truth, which is to submit to the author, God Almighty. One message, one response. And we have here a repentant prophet who preaches repentance. Key word for the next two weeks, repentance, repentance, Repentance. A long lost word in the vocabulary of the church today. Now, anyone that's a true Christian, a child of God, who has repented of sin and rebellion, were initially broken under the weight of their sin as a result of the illuminating power and presence of Almighty God through His Word as they were confronted with truth. The pride-assaulting truth of the Word of God. 
where God's righteous standard exposed the wretchedness of our human nature. That we were sinners, lost, desperate, under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God. And it was the preaching of God's word that exposed the raw nerve of our conscience. That's what the word does. Laying bare the true condition of our heart, that we are sinners, exposing our pride, exposing our iniquity, exposing all of our self-sufficiency. I'm all right, you're all right. And having been devastated by a frontal attack of God's own sword, there was surrender and there was death to self. How do we know this? Because the word of God says so. In Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Our own motives, beloved, do not escape the light of God's word. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's why you came to saving faith. If you are of the faith, it's because of the word that through his word, by grace, he leads us to the place of seeing our desperate need for a savior, driving you from sin, driving you from the world and into the arms of Jesus Christ, the savior. That's what being confronted with the word of God does. And God have mercy on men who do not preach the whole counsel of God. So as overwhelming as that original confrontation of God's word was to bring us to saving faith, it becomes even more overpowering once you become a Christian. I mean, it's, it's, it's as though God in his fatherly affection becomes more aggressive with his word towards those that he saves in the lives of his children, more so than when we were first born again. This is how involved he is. Now, if you're truly saved, you know exactly what I'm talking about, amen? Because just like Jonah, when you carry with you as a child of God a sinful attitude, a sinful reaction, a certain sinful character that is starting to own you, after a time, you can actually settle down just as Jonah did in the lower parts of that ship and become very comfortable with that sin and in that sin. Even though you know it's sinful, you know it offends God, you know it grieves the Holy Spirit, you know it quenches the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, in the process of defiance, we become hardened to the conviction, calloused, deaf. But, because you're a child of God, you know the importance of not forsaking the fellowship of the brethren, Amen. So we fellowship, we come to church where the word is preached, and every time the word is opened and preached from, it just so happens that your sin and your neglect is mentioned in every passage and in every sermon. <laughs> you see it in your daily devotional reading. 
It comes up when you meet with the women on Tuesday. It comes up when you meet with the men on Thursday. And, but even more so, every time the preacher takes his position by the sacred desk, behind the sacred desk, you're cut to the core. Because you're a child of God. And you come, albeit hesitantly, wondering, will my sin and will my disregard for the word of the Lord be exposed yet another Sunday? Will the illuminating light of God's heat, his word, pound my head and sizzle my heart here yet another Sunday? And sure enough, once again, it happens, doesn't it? To where you realize that you can't run from God. You can't hide from a God. You cannot run or hide from the exposure of his living, active word. Why? Because it's God who is speaking. This is God's word. It's his voice. He speaks. And as you hear his word, you know he's come to speak to you this day, this moment, calling you to repent, calling you to stop, calling you to forsake the very thoughts and actions that have led you to the state of mind that has you running from God, that has you running against his will. You know he's calling you to repent. You know he's calling you to submit. And once again, warning you what will happen if you don't. This is what God does with his word, beloved. This is what true preaching of the word of God does. God arouses repentance with his word. Not mere regret, beloved. Not remorse. Judas Iscariot had remorse, did he not? So much so that he went out and hanged himself. He is in hell. He's known as the son of perdition. A man who had great remorse over his sin is in hell for eternity. The arousal of repentance by way of the word, it doesn't produce just mere moral reform. Hey, I've been sleeping with my boyfriend. I'll stop. You know, I've been smoking dope during the week. I profess Christ. I'll stop. Look, it's much more than that. It produces godly sorrow, from which our brother read this morning in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, because worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to what, beloved? Salvation. Salvation. This is the manner in which God has saved you, the word of God, the heralding of truth. And this, beloved, it is the manner in which he keeps you. He sanctifies you. It's the word of God. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, okay, if you haven't been born again of the Spirit, born from above, I will assure you this. If he is to save you, this is how he will save you. Through the preaching of his word. His word, which comes to convince you to divorce yourself of sin and marry Jesus Christ. His word, which defines and declares his will. It tells you the direction to go. It, it provides you wisdom and the path to forsake. It's the word that saves and the word that sanctifies. The living, active word of God. And God's word, friends, does not change. 
The canon is made up of 66 books. 66 books in your lap. 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Canon means measuring rod. In God's word is his absolute standard. It's unchanging. It never changes. It does not change with culture. Well, everyone's accepting of homosexuality now. Must not we also? God doesn't change. The tape measure in your toolbox or your junk drawer. Everyone has a junk drawer, right? The yardstick hanging in your garage, it measures the same as your great-grandfather had hanging in his garage. Except for the slight season when I was in grade school of the metric system, which messed everything up. (laughs) Scripture is God's standard. It measures the same throughout time. Unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's Logos. He's the Word. So the Word that came to Jonah the second time is the same Word that came the first time. That's God's standard. Now, history has yet to see a more fruitful evangelistic response than Jonah's preaching in Nineveh. One message... And 120,000 people come to repentance at one time? Never has man seen that. I'm not talking about masses of people who raise their hand and come forward at an altar call. I'm talking conversion. Jonah experienced what no other preacher has. This is mass revival. This is more than revival. This is life given to sinners, to pagans. And because Jonah was a true child of God, he had experienced experienced the chastening hand of God. For whom God loves, he chastens. And he brought him to this place of repentance. So here now is Jonah, a repentant prophet. He He was running away from God. He was brought back to God, and now he's a man who's running with God to declare his God, to declare his God's message. You know, D.L. Moody once said that no one can lead a man nearer to Jesus Christ than he is himself. The experience Jonah has in the third chapter here of this glorious book is the result of God bringing a rebellious child back to himself through much painful affliction. I don't recommend that Christians go this way. If you're his, he'll get you where he wants you to be, and it may come through a lot of trouble. It may come through a life sentence in prison. It may come through five years in prison. It may come through divorce and hardship and children rebelling. It may come through all kinds of things, but I'll tell you what, don't go that way. However, you know what the word says about affliction that God sends? It's a blessing. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Now what? Having been afflicted by who? By God. Verse 71, Psalm 119 says this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 
So Jonah's now about ready to be used in the most powerful way. The God of grace and this glorious God of mercy allowed for Jonah, beloved, a second chance to do his will, his commanded will, in spite of his past disobedience. Do you see that? This is the God of the second chance, beloved. This is a God that provides chance after chance for those that are his. It may come through much affliction when we disobey the first time, the second time, the third time. But he was not going to allow Jonah to flee from the task for which God had ordained this man to carry out. How about you? This morning, perhaps you've been running from God. Perhaps you as a child of God are attempting to flee from the very presence of God as was Jonah. Denying the word of God, running contrary to his will. You know it. You know it deep down. He's been addressing you with his word. He's been convicting you. The Holy Spirit's been convicting you. You know it's him. Perhaps today, if that's you, is your second chance as a child of God to do the will of God. Obey. That's mercy. So arise this morning in repentant obedience if you're a child of God who's in this place. If you remember the primary cause of Jonah being cast overboard, the primary causation was who? It was God himself. You see that in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Now, it was men who picked him up and chucked him over the side, but Jonah refers to God as throwing him into the deep. You, chapter 2, verse 3, had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Three days later, because of the mercy of God, here now with a repentant heart, as he was sinking to the depths to die with seaweed wrapped around his head, there is the wrath of God on one of his own. He swallowed mercifully. God rescues him. You know he was wanting to be on dry land, amen? Amen. But the rescue came in a way that was unimaginable to Jonah. He ended up in dry land. That's where we are now. But it's through spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And we see this beautiful prayer in chapter 2 of a repentant man of God. So here he is. He's been deposited on land. When God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out, what did the fish do? Vomited Jonah out as commanded. Didn't swim in the other direction. Didn't swim towards Spain. It came back to the beaches from where this man came in rebellion. And he vomited him up. Now, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Same word. Same command. Same call. God's will and purpose did not change because of Jonah's disobedience, beloved. You know, God doesn't pat us on the head in our disobedience and go, you little rascal, there you go again. Well, now that you've been running astray for six months and I finally got your attention and you're racked up in the hospital now, I've changed my will. I'm going to go easy on you. No, the word does not change. The command and the calls are the same. And God granted him a second chance to preach a message that would lead many other people to repentance. Heathen people. By way of his own repentance. To preach the glorious truth of God. So Jonah is instructed now a second time, you preach what I've declared. You see, friends, his gospel is the gospel that must be preached. 
It's God's word that preachers are to preach. Not his personal opinions. The alluring stories of these pastors that would make better late night hosts than they do pastors are irrelevant. Their, com- their comedic charm is absurd. Their persuasive appeal, minus the whole counsel of God, is merely self-indulgent. The effectiveness of a true herald of God, a true preacher of God, is tied to his ability to communicate and to understand the word of God. That's his job. He's to be a workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the hallmark of a prophetic, i.e. pastoral preacher. It's about declaration and exposition, explaining the word of God, reading it and expositing it for the understanding of God's people. Anything less is to fear man. It's to fear man. Proverbs 29.25 says that the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will what? Beloved, will be exalted. You know, anxiety, about, uh, anxiety of over, over people is a trap that even the most devout Christians fall into. Many pastors today, trust me, are in this trap. It's very hard to get out of the trap. Because when you change God's method from a place like this, oh, you'll draw the people all right. But once you repent and you go back to the truth, you'll lose the majority of them. Trust me. Slick and amusing motivational speakers don't make for great preachers. Rightly understanding and clearly declaring the meaning of God's word is the prerequisite of a great herald of God, a great preacher of the Lord God Almighty. This is what Ezra did in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. What did he do? They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that the people what? They understood the reading. To understand the word of God. So Jonah now, having been deposited on dry land because of this fish who obeyed the commanded will of God, the Lord therefore says to Jonah, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So God says in effect, Jonah, speak the words that I speak. Herald the truth I proclaim. Preach without apology, without editing me, Jonah. Without candy coating my message, Jonah, you take that which I proclaim to you and you give it to the people. Now, over the last 160 to 170 years, the word of God has been doctored up to death. <laughs> I mean, an evangelistic campaign these days to a city like Nineveh would require this pre-op team to go into town, observe what the people do, observe what the people like, what are their hobbies, what are their habits, and once we find out what they are, we'll mimic those things. Well, they like this kind of music that's hard metal. They don't sing, they just go, Don't know what they're saying. 
So to meet them where they're at, let's go do that, and then we'll just go, hey, ta, 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 Jesus. <laughs> we'll do what they do, and then we'll slap Jesus over the top of it. And then we'll follow her up with a cheap gospel message. We'll give them half the gospel. Jesus loves you, doesn't want you to go to hell. Right? And then we'll have a whole bunch of people come forward. Who doesn't want to go to hell? I don't. Then come forward right now. You spend all kinds of money. You perform all kinds of tricks and pony shows thinking that you're going to seize the city for Jesus. Jonah didn't bring celebrity sports figures to the event. He didn't bring a pop singer to the event to give testimony because they're a great star in the NFL. Be given this platform? Wrong. He came with one message. God's message. Clear, unaltered, unapologetic, culturally conflicting. That's what he brought. And then here, God pours forth his spirit on one man with one simple message, and the results were miraculous. Power. Much less expensive to do ministry this way, beloved. Rather than putting up a carnival or a concert. God's methods are more often than not contrary to our human reasoning. God's manner of operation seems most irrational and unbusinesslike to those who preach a partial gospel. There's no doubt about it. Of course it's not logical. Simply put, God said, preach the preaching that I am going to tell you, Jonah. And notice, Jonah's message, as received from God himself, was not a message of sweetness and love. This was a message, beloved, of divine judgment. That's the message. It's not very friendly. That's not seeker sensitive. After all, who will come? We've got to get him in the doors. We'll lose him through the cracks. The back doors are bigger than the front. No kidding. Start preaching the gospel and you'll see true conversion. Right? Amen, brother. Now, with such an emasculation of pastors today who are afraid to stand by the, behind the pulpit and say without apology, thus says the Lord, in effect, beloved, it's crippled the church's effectiveness in preaching the whole counsel of God, the one true gospel. Illustration of this struck me this week. A woman came in to visit me or to counsel with me and I could tell the minute she sat down, man, this is a woman who's been born again because of the concern she had to want to honor God and, minister, and, 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 and serve God, the one that saved her. There's no doubt this is a new creature in Christ, right? I said, how long have you been attending here? She said, about three months. I said, when did the Lord save you? She said, about two and a half months ago. I said, man, praise God for that. She goes, I went to such and such a church for seven years to this very popular church in town. I went there for seven years. And when I came here, God saved me. I said, like, how did he do that? In what manner? This is what she said. It was when you preached on the wrath 
of God. That God awakened me to my desperate need for Jesus Christ. That he's not somebody you add to your life. He's the source of salvation because God's wrath is real and God's wrath is eternal. And those who reject Christ, the Bible says that the wrath of God is stored up for the day of destruction. Now, there's two things that are quite impressive here in this text. Number one is the task that Jonah is to carry out. Preach, Jonah, to 120,000 heathen people who don't know their right hand from their left. And by the way, as you know, Jonah, they are noted, their kings are noted for their brutality. They cut people's heads off. They bury people alive in the sand in the hot desert with their heads sticking out, and they impale people on stakes, impaled, alive, to die, and scream in agony. Those people, Jonah, I want you to go to that people and preach a word of judgment. That's the first impressive thing. The second impressive thing about the text is the simplicity of the message. It's very simple. It's five words in the Hebrew language. Od, Arbaim, Yom, Nawinwe, Nepaket. Five words, which translate, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Wow. That message, Lord? Yes. That message that I proclaim to you. Notice now, as outlined in your bulletin, there's three imperatives. Three imperatives to be upheld. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Three imperatives. Arise, number one. Go, number two. Proclaim, number three. Arise. It means to act upon something. For instance, when you rise up from your seat this morning, you have an objective in mind. Sometimes people rise up in the middle of a message here, especially if they're a first or second time visitor, and they have an objective in their mind. They, well, I'm going to go to the restroom. This is overwhelming. And then we pipe sound into the bathrooms for that purpose. The men of this church built this church and they were thinking ahead. There is no escape. The purpose behind what you're doing. What's the doing behind your doing? What's the reason behind your purpose? What's the purpose behind the action? Now the word for arise is used six times in Jonah. Notice chapter 1. It's used in verse 2. Arise, God said, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, it's used again. But Jonah rose, same word, to flee to Tarshish. And then in verse 6, it's used again. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, same word. Rise up. Call on your God. And then it's used again three times in chapter 3. Verse 1, arise, go to Nineveh, God says the second time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And then in verse 6 also, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne. And what did he do? As we'll see next week, he repented. 
He repented. So his purpose for rising up this time had changed, didn't it? Jonah did not want to do God's will. And what did God change? Jonah's want to. God changes the want to of those that are his, and it may come through much affliction, as it did with Jonah. And here, his want to was changed by a near-death experience. Praise God for his mercy. Why did you arise to come to church this morning? What was the reason, the purpose behind you coming to Pacific Hope Church this morning? My mom made me. My dad said, if I don't come, I'm kicked out. I'm tired of my neighbor hounding me to death. Right? That's the first imperative. The second is to go. It's used twice, once in chapter 1, verse 2, another time in chapter 3, verse 2. They're similar in that the purpose for going is the same. It's to cry out, it's to preach, it's to herald the word of God, and then go. This means to walk or to carry. And Jonah now is walking. He's carrying within him, in his bosom, the, the proclaimed truth of God, that God has proclaimed and that he himself now is going to herald. Because that's the third imperative, proclaim. Call out. It means to call out. It means to cry out. It means to preach. That's what preachers are. They're heralds. Preachers are to cry out with the word of God. I'm not up here to give you stories and cute anecdotes and funny stories and shtick and all that. Amen? It's the word of God that must be heralded. So here now, this chastened prophet of God obeys the word of the Lord. So, verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now, beloved, between chapter 2, verse 10, when, when Jonah is deposited on land, between that and chapter 3, verse 1, the time frame isn't certain as to when Jonah arrived. You know, he had to travel now 500 to 600 miles to get to Nineveh. So it wasn't a three-day walk to get there, I'll tell you that. And I'll explain what the three days means in a minute. But notice, he was to go to Nineveh, which was an exceedingly great city, which reads in Hebrew as follows, a great city for God. Nineveh, a great city for God. Not referring to size as much as influence. And even more so of great importance to God. This city was very important to God because it was now the object of God's affection. And he would do here what he would not do in other Assyrian cities. Why? Because he sovereignly chose to do so. A great city. For God. Now, Nineveh at this time was indeed emerging as Assyria's, Assyria's most important city. Exceedingly great, a three days walk. Now, exceedingly magnifies the word great, and great magnifies the word city. 
And the word behind exceedingly is very interesting. It is the same word that is used for Jehovah God. It's the word Elohim. Elohim. Exceedingly great. So God takes his prophet out of Israel. And as you know, the common or the, the, the common method or God's norm of sending prophets was to send them to his own people, Israel. He breaks the norm. He picks this man up. He commands him, you go to the Ninevites and you preach this word. And he went. Now, it says that it was a three days walk. Now, the NIV translates this most accurately as a visit required three days. Now, a three-day journey was figurative in ancient times. It was idiomatic idiomatic to mean any journey that was a long, drawn-out traveling experience was known as a three-day journey. Any journey that was very short in extent would be referred to as a one-day's journey. But what I do not believe that this is referring to Jonah's five or six hundred mile trek from the beach to Nineveh. Nor do I believe that the point being made here is that Nineveh was so great that it took three days to walk its circumference. Granted, it was a great city, it was a walled city, and outside of that city you had little pockets or villages around it. Could have taken three days, doubtful. But here, here's what it probably is. In Assyria at this time, it was commonly practiced that an official visit to an, a city like this required three days. And the protocol was as follows. On day one, a visitor or an ambassador would arrive at the city gates. He would, he would um, locate certain officials of the city. And he would declare what he was there for. He would present his credentials on day one, declaring the purpose of his visit. And then on day two, he would be taken and received by the officials in charge. And then he would be able to commence business on day two. And then that business would be carried into day three. But also on day three, there would be an official send-off. And with that send-off, any response would be given to the messenger to take back to his government, his region. But notice, the three days is not necessarily stressing size to this great city, but more, more so stressing significance. Therefore, protocol was set in order because this was a significant city. It was set in order and it was to be followed if someone turns the air on, please. And then notice verse 4. Then Jonah, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and he said this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So once he arrives... Jonah's not preaching on day two. Jonah's preaching on day one. He's not waiting till day two. It's not that he didn't go through, go through protocol because he most certainly would have or they would have cut his head off. But it's interesting as you look at extra biblical history, it tells us something interesting. Nineveh at this time, I believe, was providentially prepared by God to receive this message in fear. 
There was floods that had occurred during this time. They had experienced famine and disease. History tells us that there was a great solar eclipse at this time. So imagine them in their superstition as heathens. They're already in a state of fear. And then you get this prophet showing up, this prophet of God, and he states his business. God said, I am a prophet of the one true God who made the sea and who made the land. And this place is going to be overthrown. Whew. You can go preach that now, brother. Preach it, brother. So he was likely immediately taken to the king when he declared his business and he preached on day one and he cried out this third imperative he proclaimed. He preached yet 40 days. 40 is the number of judgment. Well, God said judgment by flooding the earth. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. When God sent spies into the promised land, 40 days he sent them in. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience. For 40 days, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, spent in the wilderness before commencing his public ministry, being tempted by Satan himself. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Overthrown. Now, the word, this overthrown here, is a reflexive verb. A verb whose subject and object refer to the same person or thing. This place will be overthrown. And it can mean one of two things here. Number one, it can possibly mean to literally be turned over. Or it can mean to turn over. As in changing. As when Moses in Exodus chapter 7 laid down his staff and it turned over or changed to a what? To a serpent. And some commentators play with the idea that there's a double entendre being communicated here, meaning both meanings are part of the context. But I believe as you look at the context, it seems to conclude that the Ninevites interpreted it as Nineveh being overthrown in judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown in judgment. And the reason I believe that is because we we see here in verse 9, the king who says, who knows, (laughs) who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not what? Perish. Now, he preaches this yet 40 days. This was not likely his whole sermon. It could have been. He could have just gone around saying, 40 days, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And everybody literally repented. But it's most likely that that message supported his entire message. Be like the title of the message. Maybe. Right? He preached judgment. He preached, God is coming to destroy you. See, Jonah was no user-friendly prophet, amen? Jonah was not one who preached some, some glib and happy message. He just wants the best for you. Right now. The message that everyone would want to hear. He didn't offer psychological comfort for their bruised egos subsequent to this message of judgment. He didn't provide that. He just told them simply, you better repent or God is going to destroy all of you. That's what he told them. (coughs) 
This is a heavy message, isn't it? This is what God calls sinners to do. Which we'll see in a moment. See, Jonah didn't come preaching that judgment is coming, that God's wrath is about to be unleashed in order for them to run and escape from Nineveh. No. He brought the message so that they would what? What follows great warning? Repentance, the commandment to repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your evil. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your human pride. And submit to the God who made the heavens, the earth, the land, the sea, the mountains, the valleys, and man in his own image who are here to obey his every command. Amen? The only rebels in all of creation. Those made in the image of God. Repent. Now, notice this. If you're a child of God this morning, you're saved by grace, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you know you're a child of God. And you're in the same place as Jonah. Know this, beloved. God is a God of second chances, and perhaps God here has, here you, has you here to admonish you that he is the God of second chances, and today's your second chance to repent and get back into doing the will of God for his glory, because he saved you. Stop messing around. But notice this. As God's imperatives, his commanded will is carried out, be it personal or ministerially, what follows? Great, miraculous results. Beyond what you can ever comprehend. Now, as we'll see next time, God will relent from bringing his wrath and calamity upon these people. So the God that Jonah preached did turn from pouring forth his wrath. Why? Why did he not pour forth his wrath as he said he would in 40 days? Why? Because they repented. Because they turned from their sin and evil and they turned to him. Notice the one response after the three imperatives carried out by Jonah. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed what? Next word? In God. They believed in God. They believed in God, the one who declared that 40 days until destruction and wrath would be unleashed. They repented. You know, Noah preached the same message for 120 years. 2 Peter chapter 2 says that Noah is a preacher of righteousness and to preach righteousness is to preach repentance. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, cried out in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 3, what? Repent. In Matthew 4, Jesus came 40 days from being in the wilderness preaching what? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. People ask, what about the people in Haiti? The people we want to help. What about the people in Haiti? I mean, after all, sudden destruction came. It was just an earthquake. It could happen anywhere, right? It could happen here today. But what about these dear people? They died so suddenly, they didn't have a chance to repent. What about the people who, who ignorantly went to work on 9-11-2001 and they died like that? They were vaporized. What about these dear people? It, it, it's not fair. But my friends, Jesus answered that question 2,000 years ago in Matthew or Luke chapter 13 
It says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus said to them, do you suppose, okay, before we get any further, here's some Galileans that came down to Jerusalem to provide sacrifice on the altar to the one true living God, and whether their sacrifice and their worship was from the heart or whether it was surfacy, we'll never know. Even so, as they're worshiping God, Pilate had their blood mingled with the very sacrifices that they brought to God. In other words, Pilate just had them slain. This is Jesus' answer to that. He said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Do you think the people of Haiti are worse sinners than others because they suffered this fate? Most certainly I say no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up a construction accident. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no. They were building a tower, a water tower, Siloam, the pool of Siloam. They built a water tower. It crumbled. It fell. It killed a bunch of men. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Key word here, key command, repent. Repent. In Luke 24, our precious Lord and Savior said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that, next word, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning here in Jerusalem. So here we see that repentance is the necessary prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? Now some will say, wait a minute, Tiger. I thought that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. Answer? You're correct. Next question, what kind of faith is saving faith? What kind of belief is true saving belief? I mean, after all, the Bible says that even demons, what? Believe, but they shudder. James tells us, chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. That's great. You do well. The demons also believe, and you know what they do? They shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In other words, if you proclaim proclaim faith and there's no repentance to prove this faith that saves, you're a fool. And here it is, beloved. Repentance is always God's message until the end of time. Jesus cried out, repent and believe in what? The gospel. There's no belief in the gospel without repentance. So in the weak evangelical churches of our day that are concerned about and consumed with seeker sensitivity, repentance is a long lost word. It's a long lost word. And it's a command that's been diffused from the mouths of preachers. It just is. But this is the very essential truth, beloved, that that, that we must not evade in raising our own children. Amen? We have to raise all these little loved ones, all these little ones we love, and our own children as they grow through the ages, through the years, into their teenage years, that they must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if repentance is real, they will be broken under the word of God just as any adult will be. Just as the adult who's 32 years old that was in my office this week, they will be broken by the word of God which will drive them into the saving arms of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So the church as a whole, especially in America, has become so disgustingly politically correct by caving to the the pressure to be culturally compatible that it's become impotent in its preaching. It's a sad day. Repentance is a bygone word, and it's avoided at all costs to timid pastors and their liberal-minded flocks. So in order to spare themselves the discomfort of a contentious people, who won't stay around, around very long if you preach repentance. They react in cowardly fashion. And you have to be aware of this in case you're not. They create a new doctrine. And there's a new doctrine. It's not really new, but it's going around. It's very popular right now. And that what they say, the doctrine says that there's two kinds of Christians that are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Two kinds. Those that are disciples and those that are believers. Well, biblically, those are synonymous terms, by the way. They say there's one group that, that's committed to Jesus and there's another group that's uncommitted. These, there's one group that are believers who follow Christ and another group of believers who don't follow Christ. There's those that are serious followers and those that are flippant, lazadaisical followers. Which is to say, there's those that have repented And there's those that have not. But they believe the facts. One preacher said that in abandoning the use of the word repentance, we have correspondingly surrendered the concept of repentance. Which means to have a change of thinking. To turn. So the Bible makes clear, if you haven't experienced as a professing believer in Jesus Christ the definitive action of repentance, you haven't experienced salvation, period. Please know this. Reason being, that salvation is not free. Now follow me. That's a striking statement, isn't it? Salvation is not free. It cost Jesus Christ, the Son of God, everything. Everything. And in response to his finished work, he gifts those freely who hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, because they're his, what do they do? They follow him. Gifted with eternal life because it's not free. It costs the Lamb of God, the Holy One, to become a curse. For anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. In that work, beloved, salvation is a work that is accomplished by Christ. It is caused by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who comes to the sinner and indwells the Spirit. It it 
He transforms the sinner's disposition. He changes our likes. He changes our dislikes. He changes our affections supernaturally. A new nature takes over the sinner, which promotes a conversion that is undeniable by way of repentance. That's what he does. Acts tells us that Peter was tripping because of the work that God was doing in the Gentiles. And what do they say? There's no doubt God has granted the Gentiles repentance. Who grants repentance? God. For us to act it out. So again, apart from the definitive action of repentance, there's no experience of eternal salvation. You may have responded to an altar call one to 20 times. You may have signed a card or raised your hand one to 20 times. But it is only repentance before God that is of the definitive salvation experience. Listen to the words of Jesus as I get ready to close up. In Luke chapter 11, verse 30, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation, that's the generation of Jesus, who were rejecting His Messiahship, at the judgment and will condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They were all saved because they all repented at the preaching of God's word, God's word, which he initiated. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah was a type of Christ to come. Jesus is the anti-type. He's the fulfillment of all Old Testament foreshadowings. Here he stands. He's living the word of God. He's active. He's the word. And those who reject the gospel under the preaching of Christ having already come are more accountable than those of Jonah's time. A greater has come. The anti-type is here. Those were types. I'm the anti-type. The fulfillment. I am the gospel, Jesus says. Can anyone tell this day, right here, right now, if God will turn from pouring forth his fierce anger here 2,500 years after Jonah? And the answer to that question is forever settled, beloved. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the glorious cross. There at the cross, through the blood of Jesus, we can know for certain that God will forgive those who repent. He will receive those who come to Him through the cross of the Son, the Lord of glory, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And the person who comes to God through the Son will find acceptance. So, beloved friends, if you're not in Christ this morning, come while the time is available. Today is the day of salvation. Come before you perish. Repent of your sin. Divorce yourself from sin in your ways and marry Jesus Christ. He's the only hope. He is salvation. 
You can't count on God's mercy to save you tomorrow. You may be dead tonight. You come now. Come while your 40 days are still open and he will turn from his wrath and he will embrace you. Reject him and the Bible says that wrath is being stored upon wrath for the day of judgment. Well, I can't come to Christ. I don't think I'm one of the elect. Listen. It does, whether you're elect or not is determined when you repent of your sin and embrace Jesus Christ and then the knowledge that you're elect, which the Bible teaches clearly that you were chosen before the foundation of the earth, is therefore an assurance for you that you are his, that he did choose you before the foundation of the earth. So to look at it from that view is to look at it from the wrong view. When one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the joy of being his elect will soon be experienced. Because you'll realize that you are one of those upon whose hand God has touched, grabbed, saved, delivered. It's His grace. So stop deceiving yourself. If you come saying, well, I guess I'm just not one of God's elect, you have a major heart condition that indicates that you are in deep trouble. That's no trump card. Repent from that thinking. Come, repent of your sin. Embrace Jesus Christ and you too shall be saved. Amen? Amen. Come to Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who bore the wrath. And if you're a Christian, you understand that you will never face judgment for your sin because he bore the wrath in your place. So stop deceiving yourselves if that's you. Come to Christ. So here we have Jonah, this disobedient prophet, who was graced by the God of second chances. Who lovingly chastened his servant. Gracefully delivering him from death into the fish's belly to be delivered to do that which God had commanded him in the first place. So it was there that an already repentant child of God, as he was sinking, repenting and crying out to God for mercy, was rescued by God, this man, a repentant man of God, went on to preach a message of judgment and many people repented. At least 120,000. Preordained to be saved. Through a message of what, beloved? Judgment. That leads to the gospel. John MacArthur, in his latest book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore, he writes this in response to many preachers today who say, Jesus wasn't confrontational. It was always a message of love and, you know, roses and fluff. So in response to all that nonsense, he, he writes a book, which he normally does. He wrote this, quote, <laughs> Paul's systematic outline of the gospel in Romans begins with the words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans 1, verse 18. And then he goes on for almost three full chapters expounding on the depth and universality of human ungodliness and unrighteousness, which is what unleashed God's wrath in the first place. And then only after he has made the bad news inescapable does Paul introduce the gospel's good news. 
he follows the very same pattern in abbreviated form in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. End quote. You see, the judge of the living of the dead, friends, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he is the judge of the living and the dead because he himself bore the Father's judgment, bore the Father's wrath, becoming sin on Calvary's cross, having never sinned. And he came and died and shed his blood for those who will repent and embrace him that they might live. That's the gospel. That's the good news. No one has suffered greater judgment. No one has suffered greater wrath than our Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. So if you're a Jonah, a child of God who's in disobedience, today the word goes out, arise, go, obey. Arise, go, my beloved one. Here's your second chance. Obey my commanded will. And if you're one who's not in Christ, and you sit here this morning, but I'm a good person. Repent from thinking that you're a good person. Repent from thinking that I'm a patriotic American, so that makes me a Christian automatically. Repent of that thinking. After all, I'm a Republican. Repent of that thinking because numerous Republicans are on the broad road leading to destruction thinking they're okay. I'm a decent philanthropist. I do philanthropic good throughout San Diego. Repent of that thinking. Come to Christ. I'm a straight-edge moralist. Don't drink, don't chew, don't do, go with girls that do, don't smoke dope. I'm straight edge. Repent and come to Christ. I'm a sober alcoholic. Repent and come to Christ. And you too shall be saved. Father, we thank you for the striking truth of Scripture in the sometimes very offensive living word. We thank you that the word sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it cuts and it divides and it is the great healer of the soul. So Lord, may we be reminded as children of God that it's much easier to do your will the first time to uphold your imperatives throughout Scripture. And Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need grace every day. So Lord, I pray that you'll bless your people this morning, those that are of the family of God, sinners saved by grace, the church, the beloved bride of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would be edified into understanding the price that was paid, the one who bore the wrath, so that we will never have to bear the wrath, that we will never stand to be judged for our sin, because it was judged at the cross. And that you view us as perfectly righteous because of the lamb that was slaughtered. Your son, our savior, who shed his blood. For without the shedding of blood, your scripture says that there is no forgiveness of sins. But when one understands that they were redeemed and they were bought at a great price, the command to repent is a joy, to fall in godly sorrow and submit to the one who did become sin. The son, Jesus Christ. 
May we be reminded of that as believers. And today, Lord, for those who sit here yet unrepentant, not saved, concerned with all kinds of other things but your wrath, I pray that they be awakened to repent as you command, that by grace that you'll draw them to yourselves, dragging them out of a fire to awaken them, to give them eyes to see and ears to hear, to no longer be natural men and women, but those saved by the blood of the Lamb, leading them to the place of godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, that they would be enfolded into the household of faith by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.